Welcome to Taking Ship, a podcast about cultural politics, political culture, and why no one can actually tell the difference between right and wrong, whatever the philosophers may say. I'm Frank Spring. With me is Ellie Jacobs, whose office is the world, desk is a bench on Riverside Drive, and whose coffee mug is a red solo cup. Hey, Ellie. Hey, Frank. I wanted to thank everybody for listening to our episode so far and the rave reviews we've been getting over email and Twitter want to remind you to please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and we're also now available on Google Play for those of you who like phones that explode in your hands. Finally, we want to make sure that everybody is following us on Twitter at, at @takingship, and that's ship with a P as in pandemic. So there's been a lot of talk about how strained relations have been between Donald Trump and the Republican establishment and how the health care bill is likely to strain those relations even further. And, and so because we're serious-minded people in pursuit of truth and nothing but truth, we have an actual Republican uh, here on our podcast today to help uh, parse this and talk about it. Yeah, after uh, Frank and I do a little bit of a run on some of the news of the day, we're going to be joined by Whitney Monroe. Um, just our third episode you know, kudos to us. We're already sailing across the aisle because just that's how we, that's the way we float. And really, Don't Whitney, call us heroes. <laughs> Whitney's awesome. And we wanted her on early because uh, she's going to be a great voice and hopefully we'll have her on a couple times over the next, you know, however many episodes as uh, as a voice of the other side. Um, she's currently the director of marketing for the Foundation for Government Accountability. Prior to that, she was the vice president of communications for the Bill of Rights Institute. And from 2012 to 2014, she was the director of grassroots for FreedomWorks, where she championed legislative and electoral reform efforts across the country. She's also been a corporate flack like yours truly, and far more impressively, a middle school history teacher. Um, we'll so be you know that she's flinty and tough as hell. Yeah, yeah. And Texan. Uh, that's important to note. Um, we'll be joined by her uh, probably in about 20, 25 minutes. But in the meantime, uh, Frank, let's dive into what's going on today. Um, let's start with um, not necessarily the immediate news of the day. We'll get to that in a second, but let's go back to some of the stuff that uh, President Trump proposed in his um, vaudeville-like speech last week uh, about the budget with very sharp increases in military spending and no cuts to Social Security or Medicare, steep cuts everywhere else from the State Department to the EPA to FEMA to the TSA and the Coast Guard. Right. It's the, the key thing to think about with this is, so yeah, he's got a new budget proposal or new lines of what the budget should look like, sharp increase in military spending, but no cuts to Social Security or Medicare. And the thing to understand that I think a lot of our, our listeners may get already is military spending, Social Security, and Medicare, those three things are the federal budget. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to get into too deep an actuarial analysis here, but using the historical averages, defense is 22%. Uh, Social Security is 35 percent. Historical average of Medicare is about 14 percent. Interest on the debt, which we have to service uh, if we're to remain uh, a good – if the United States is to remain a good credit risk, uh, is 8 percent. Basically, military, Social Security, Medicare, interest on the debt, those are 86 percent combined, 86 percent of the total debt, which means that all of the other stuff, the rest of what we think of as the federal government is only 14 percent. Yeah, um, you know, it, it brings to mind uh, Scott Pelley um, of CBS during an interview with Paul Ryan right after Ryan became speaker uh, had this quote, uh, most people don't realize that two-thirds of the federal budget is Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Uh, obviously, that number is lowball, as Frank just said. 
and the Pentagon. So basically, Scott Pelley summed it up saying the U.S. government is an insurance company with an army, which is a pretty good way to think about it. Um, and, you know, to give people a little bit more of the perspective, something that Trump is really bandied about is that he wants to raise defense spending by 10 percent, which is about 54 billion dollars. That's billion with a B as in boisterous. Uh, and that's actually and that 54 billion, which is only 10 percent of the DOD budget, is more than the entire budget that the State Department had last year. Um, and if, if uh, people have been paying attention over the last couple of weeks, the generals and senior flag officers have all come out very much opposed to drastic cuts for the State Department. They recognize how necessary it is for the country's overall defense um, uh, policy. Um, but yeah, let's you know get back into the numbers kind of. Sure, and I think the the uh, the question about military spending. So you know you've got all of you've got Social Security and Medicare. Those are parts of the budget that are in fact that money is already spent on a year by year basis. That's that's not discretionary spending. That has to be that has to be spent and spent a certain way. Uh, so if you want to change Social Security and Medicare spending, you have to actually change the law, which means that everything else is discretionary spending. Of that discretionary spending, we spend more than half of it already on the on the military. I am not here, you know, calling for a massive def- you know, defense budget cut or anything of the kind. But what I'm saying is, we are already pushing military spending about as much as we can within the context of uh, of the budget. And I would raise this question: Trump wants this massive spike in military spending. What is he spending it on? What will he be? What is that military spending for? It doesn't. I, it, it, this seems totally disconnected from a broader strategic end, because you know, it, because military buildups can't be a goal unto themselves. The idea of just having a you know a you know having another carrier battle group, for example, what are we going to do with it? Where are we going to place it? What broader strategy is this in service of? And we've got nothing from Trump on this. Yeah, to me, it's sort of it's kind of. Trump is so much a character and caricature of the 80s that he looked at the Reagan buildup, which was done with a strategic purpose. It was done to scare the crap out of the Russians, and it worked. And Trump just, and Trump, as we know, is so narcissistic and kind of small-minded that he is very much in the, in, the, in the camp of he who has the most toys wins. And I think that's the, what he, that's the way he sees that this is working, where the military is not necessarily clamoring for everything that for all this more money they are there's parts of the military that are looking for the already budgeted and ordered um revamping of the nuclear triad uh, but that's not really what trump is talking about he's talking about you know more boats and more ships and more submarines and more aircraft carriers and i don't necessarily think that we need that unless he's really planning on fighting the big war which steve bannon keeps saying is going to happen which is a little scary yeah, there's a difference between, and it's, and I don't think that he has. I mean, it's very clear he doesn't have the kind of nuanced thinking to understand this. There's a difference between ending the kind of spending uh, constraints that have been part of sequestration, which have been which have created inflexibility in defense spending. So you know, you've got a new project, you want to see if you can get some money for it. I'm sorry, you can't sequestration. That is one t- that is one way of technically raising military spending, but that's about flexibility. It's another thing to just say we're going to gut the rest of the government of the United States to purchase a bunch of platform purchase a bunch of weapons platforms that we may not necessarily need. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, and you know, going back to um, and we probably should wrap this up relatively quickly, but you know, going back to the ideas of what the budget is actually made up of and what it's not made made up of. Usually when polling shows that the average American believes that upwards of 25% of the entire government's budget is on foreign aid. And the reality is it's actually far less than 1% of the entire budget. So people have a 24% warp perception on where the money is going to. And that doesn't even start to talk about the idea that what you just said, Frank, 
86% is already taken care of before we start doing anything else. So I think there's sort of three, I want to sort of end with, with a couple of points here. Uh, three points. The first, this is This budget is going to be a problem with Republicans. It's already a problem with Republicans uh, because even if they followed Trump's terms to their absolute and shut down every element of the federal government except defense, social security, and Medicare, they'd still have 86% of the remaining government intact. Uh, and the country would also be a complete fucking mess, but never mind that now. This is why Republicans are obsessed with social security and Medicare because that's the only way you can take a serious bite out of uh, out of the overall budget, unless you go after defense, which of course is an anathema to them. Uh, another point: budgets that are long on basic social provisions, things like Social Security and Medicare, uh, and are very long on the military and are light on everything else, uh, are very typical of authoritarian states. Uh, this this looks this is following a a sort of budgeting playbook that is distressingly familiar. Yeah, and. and uh, Aside from the fact that it's distressingly familiar, the plan is also, even if you say that it's possible if we cut this and we snip that and we do this and we do that, you also need to be generating more revenue as the government. And part of that, part of this whole idea of the more money is coming from is increasing the GDP. GDP numbers are not things that you can really play around with. Jeb Bush was almost laughed out of the Republican primary for suggesting that GDP was going to get the GDP up over 4%. Bernie Sanders and all of his, some of his you know, let's give everything to everybody for free concepts were based on the idea of getting GDP to 4% as well. Trump is based on something like getting it to 45 5%. So even if we say that if you snip here and snip there, it's still, it's still based on its fundamental level on something that is completely unattainable. So what we're talking about, and this is, that, that's exact, that's, that you're right on point here, and this is, this is my final point. What we're talking about is someone who has set out the guidelines of a budget that call for uh, the popular program, Social Security and Medicare, not to be touched. So we're not going to do we're not seriously going to touch the big cost items in the federal in the federal budget. More more of the thing that he likes, which is defense spending, less of everything else and tax cuts. This is there's no way to make those numbers add up. This and and the idea is we're going to pay for all of this because there will be manna from heaven. Money will grow on trees in the form of this heightened GDP, which appears to be totally unrealistic. This is the budgeting of a child. I want what I want. I want it now. Don't talk to me about anything else. But even so, as a you know as a party, we have to be careful because you can't fight crazy budget messages with how are you going to pay for that? That's irresponsible because that's that is it's that is historically not effective messaging to when someone when someone is offering people something that they really want uh, you, you know you and you, know, you can't go back and say well you can't possibly pay for that being the responsible adult is not a possible is not a is not a popular is not a popular uh, political uh, posture i will say this though that would be relevant if this budget were running for president but this budget is not running for president <laughs> This budget is uh, this budget has got to pass the House. It's got to pass the Republican House, uh, and there are going to be some people in that in that party, as well as a bunch of Democrats, who can very legitimately look at this budget in particular and say, "You this thing doesn't add up. You can't pay for any of this stuff. It's and it may not make it through." And it's I think there's going to be there are rocky rocky times ahead uh, for a budget laid out like this, not just within not just for Democrats, but uh, but also within the Republican caucus. Yeah, speaking of childlike things that won't get through the House. Let's talk briefly about Trump care. Um, my big question now that they've finally rolled this thing out after seven years of voting to uh, repeal Obamacare uh, is why is this bill a mess? 
why wasn't there something sitting in a drawer, at least at a think tank for the last seven years, that could just get rolled out that would have had broad support across the conservative pantheon, think tanks, advocacy groups, interest groups, at least most of the Senate and most of the House. What they rolled out has none of that. So currently, the health insurance companies, the hospitals, the doctors, AARP, a good chunk of the Republican Senate, a decent chunk of the House members, of uh, Republican House members, a whole group of conservative advocacy organizations are all opposed to this thing. So how the hell do you introduce something that you've been yelling about for eight years without the, any kind of support? Yeah, I mean, I think it was John Dingle who um, who said... Uh, John Dingle years. is who everyone should be following on Twitter at all times. Yeah, if you're not, yeah, if you're not following former, former Michigan Congressman John Dingle, you are really missing out. You're doing Twitter uh, he, wrong. Yeah, he is. Yeah, that's exactly. You're you're, do, you're doing Twitter wrong. And while it is may arguably impossible to do Twitter right, uh, there are a number of ways to do it wrong, and that is one. Uh, I think he was the one who said they had eight years to come up with an alternative, and they ended up scribbling a bunch of tax cuts on a bar napkin. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. essentially what it boiled down to. I mean, it, it, there was a line in a New York Times. Uh, Robert Draper um, had a Times Magazine piece uh, two three weeks ago where he said. Uh, he quoted a Republican basically saying that they were going to repeal Obamacare and replace it with the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, there's, that's, that's exactly right. There's something to that. But, but a much more mangled version that no one seems to like particularly. Uh, so this mangled version of, uh, you know, this mangled thing called Trump Care uh, comes stumbling out of a hurried and desperate process. Uh, Trump himself may like it. Maybe Tom Price likes it. It's not clear. Ryan certainly, Paul Ryan certainly seems to like it, but it's not winning a lot of friends or, uh, or, uh, or gaining a lot of influence. And then strangely from the oddest quarter, a kind of reasonable appeal, not exactly support, but, but a, uh, um, you know, a message that we can work together to make this thing, to figure this thing out comes from the democratic party. Speaking of ways to do Twitter wrong, this was the message that De- this is the tweet the Democratic Party uh, put out after uh, a consortium of hospitals came out against the GOP healthcare bill. It reads: If the hospitals are coming out against the GOP healthcare proposal, you know it desperately needs revision. This this bill doesn't desperately need revision. It needs to be taken out to the Commons and burnt by the hangman. It is a non-starter. It's it can't even pass its own caucus. So just a, a, a pro tip for our friends over at the DNC. The message is they had eight years to come up with an alternative. They can't get one that will even that it, the one what they proposed is not even popular with their own party. This thing is dead in the water. Not it desperately needs revision. So why you know so but you know our our desire to once again be performatively reasonable, uh, biting us in the ass. Yeah, I don't understand why the Democratic tweet wasn't essentially um, Republicans don't even like this, period, yeah. and leave it at that. And you know the Wall Street Journal heaped it on yesterday. And again, if you want to talk about groups that you really want in your corner before you roll out a major piece of legislation, is the Wall Street Journal editorial page. And they didn't particularly like it. And there was one line in it that I particularly found delicious, uh, sort of in the ironic position, is, quote, maybe one day Congress will muster the political courage to take on the business lobby and limit the inefficient and regressive tax preference. <laughs> we do live in the golden age of breathtaking gall. Right. Like I will say this. The Wall Street Journal telling the Republican Congress to take on the business lobby is just yeah. it you it, it it makes it makes you weep blood because there's no other fluid that will actually work. 
That's exactly, this is precisely it. Now that same editorial is the one where they're they're basically saying this is we've got to pass this thing because it's our only chance to do it, even if it's do, even if it's not very good. Yeah. And there's this sort of like so if a thing basic so so the message here for all of our listeners, if a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. If you have one shot at pulling something off, do it as badly as possible. Because, because that's because reasons. Because that's what you've got. So, yeah. if for example you were to the moon shot. To get to the moon, yeah. if you were, yeah, exactly. If you were going to the moon, your weather conditions are you know are such that you've got one shot to launch this damn thing. You know, you spent all of this time and energy. You're ready to you know you're ready to la- you're ready to launch your shuttle. The weather conditions are perfect. You've got one shot. The important thing at that point is to take know, one of the crew members out back, break his legs before he's ready to go. That's exactly. So, he can, right. so you're down down one crew member. Throw out, your throw out the oxygen. <laughs> poison your ground crew. Loosen as many screws as you can get your hands on. Uh, you know, change your you know, throw away your flight path. I mean, it's you know, all of this. If a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing catastrophically badly. Is my point. I've always said that. My grandfather taught me that. I've never forgotten that. <laughs> all right, Frank. Let's uh, bring in Whitney Monroe now. Um, Whitney, as I mentioned, is going to be our resident Republican for the day. And um, we'll just start off. Uh, Whitney, where are you and why and how did you end up doing that? So I am, well, first, thank you for having me. Um, But I'm at the Foundation for Government Accountability, which is a small nonprofit that specifically focuses on regulatory reform, welfare reform, and healthcare reform. Um, And I ended up here after working in another universe for quite some time in education reform um, and working on political campaigns and doing all the fun things that that brings to your life. Uh, and came here because I was looking for a substantive opportunity to influence policy um, on the communications end. And I manage our comms and marketing um, in a way that was rational. So it wasn't just screaming at people saying they were wrong. It wasn't. Um, well, that's no fun. I know, right? <laughs> it wasn't laying down and just saying, yes, whatever you tell us is good policy, we'll do it. It's actually rational research quality um, suggestions that are backed by data instead of just what the whim of the, the populace is at the moment. So that's why and how I got here. <laughs> Tremendous. Speaking of whims of the populace, uh, let's, let, let us begin this story at roughly the beginning. What is your view on how Trump came to be your party's nominee? Well, um, I think that Trump becoming the party's nominee really does have its impetus in 2008 at the crux of people getting excited about the Tea Party. And I think there were factions that came together at that time that all believed that they were working for the same goal. Um, They were really sick of politics as usual. They were very unhappy with Republican leadership at the time, and they wanted to make change. And then along the way, when it felt like those groups really did have that sense of common purpose around fiscal responsibility, no social issues, no this, no that, really had a nice focus for about 18 months to two years. And then it just started to splinter. And the different groups, all their competing priorities came out. And they started fighting for who was going to be the loudest voice, who was going to be the one that caused the most shock, who was going to be the one who primaried the most people. Um, you know. And out of that, a bunch of people just got convinced that the only way to influence policy, influence Washington, whatever, is to be that loudest screaming voice in the room. Um, they didn't care about rationality. They didn't care about logic or facts. It was just, we want our way. We want it now. A lot of the fiscal stuff fell to the wayside. The social stuff came in. Um, 
I like to say we used to have a group that was limited government and it's now just limited government for me and not for you. It's government the way I want it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think that that's where it has its roots. And then goodness gracious, the party just didn't pay attention the entire primary process. I mean, I just feel like they were tone deaf. Other candidates were tone deaf. The talking heads were definitely not listening to um, what people were saying and paying attention on the ground. Um, and so I think that's how he got there. Um, still frightens me that it happened, but that's what. Sure. So this is how he became the nominee. And, tell, and, and that also contains the answer to the other question, which is why the Never Trump movement didn't really co- weren't successful in stopping this guy. So he becomes the nominee. How did, what's your theory of the case for how he became president? I wish I knew. Um, I feel like, and you guys can challenge me on this, I feel like there was a sense of inevitability. A lot of my liberal friends, all my Democrat friends, felt like they just, they're like, there's no way this guy's going to win. We have it in the bag. And so I don't know that they campaigned or pushed as hard as they might have with a different rival. Um, and I think that his message resonated with people that were like completely out of politics, I think, for a little while or unhappy. You know, I think he just resonated with people who weren't familiar with the process. They weren't watching the shows that we would watch or listen to people that we would listen to as engaged constituents. They're just you know, like, yeah, that guy makes sense. Everything's frustrating and everything's bad. And then I don't know that Hillary harnessed <laughs> an opportunity beyond, you know, kind of tongue in cheek pointing out his his major issues. Um, and then. I wish that, you know, Republicans seem to really just hate her. And I don't know that I felt like Democrats beyond a certain amount really loved her. So there was just that sense of visceral hatred that came out. Yeah, that's a pretty fair assessment. There's really nothing there that I can disagree with. I think one of the points that you make is interesting is that he kind of galvanized some group of people that don't regularly pay attention to politics and just saw him as the guy on The Apprentice. And literally... You know, there was some terrible quote that Trump is a poor person's idea of a rich person. And I don't think that actually is what what gets it. I think it's more Trump has built a brand out of himself of being success, of representing success over a 20 year time period. And he has been, you know, front page news in New York for a long period of time across the country at various different times. Um, and the fact that uh, it, quite literally, Frank and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, quite literally, he descended down to our level upon a golden staircase to come and save save us and only he could do it and yeah, the uh, most pharaonic entrance in the history of american politics yeah. yeah just i mean the 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 irony was dripping and just the the uh, i mean unfortunately there's nothing else you can say other than so, some sort of gullibility but i think it's a gullibility based on you know 16 or more years of government and transcendence and not getting a whole lot done for the average person I completely agree. And I also think, you know, you brought up the whole, he's the guy on The Apprentice and his brand. He isn't always that successful. I don't look at him personally, looking at his entire life and think, gosh, this is the bastion of success at getting things done. Um, But he did create the brand and he sticks with it. And his team, despite all factual, whatever, you know, they stick with that message and they just push it out and consistency. So it sticks in people's heads. He's successful. He has businesses. You know, it's, the false narrative that they man- managed to make factual for people it still blows my mind. Yeah, which, I mean, it kind of brings to, to point a, a little bit of a different question to it, is that if he was able to appeal to enough of the Republican base, and whether it was because he was attracting new voters, uh, frustrated voters, or people who just reviled Hillary Clinton, 
all of which are incredibly important uh, segments of the population to attract to win. Uh, where does that leave kind of the traditional conservative broader base of the GOP in the era of Trump? It's a really good question. Um, I look at myself and I say, you know, where do I fit in the Republican Party right now? And I don't know that there's a place. Um, and so there's a lot of us that are just here hoping that you know, some sense of normalcy will come out of this. Um, I think this week's uh, situation with the health care bill has kind of proven that maybe we don't you know, we don't have a good path forward at the moment. Um, I became a Republican. I mean, full disclosure, my first election that I could have voted in was in 2000 and I voted for Gore. So I'm not your traditional like grew up red, you know, like wore elephants on my skirt in college. That definitely wasn't me. Um, but I do feel like, I, you know, I strongly support fiscal conservatism. And I do believe that there is a role for government, but that it is a limited one in my personal life. So I lean on the libertarian end, obviously. Um, and I don't see anything of that right now, whether it's coming from Congress or from the White House. I see a lot of heavy handedness and use of government to get what you want. So I, I don't have a good answer for where that leaves the traditional Republican base. I think it depends on how we react as a base. Do we just sit back and go, okay, well, they asked for the White House, they asked for Congress, we gave it to them, and this is what we get, and we just try to make the best of it? Or do we push for the things that we know are right? Do we keep challenging um, you know, to get you know, sound policy and sound politics back in the party? I, I think it all depends. You know, right now, people are really angry on all sides. I look at Republicans yeah. and some that are angry and that's why they voted for Trump. And there's some that are angry and that's why they're never Trump. There's not a lot of happy. Um, and so we've got to figure out what it is that gets that happy, if there is a happy Republican, how we get that happy Republican back um, in the mix. Yeah, um, I, I know Frank wants to turn to Trump care, but I, I have one little quick follow-up. And I guess the, the question is, is the Republican, the, again, kind of the conservative, let's call them the never Trump part of the Republican Party, is their dislike and uh, disapproval of Trump and Trump's policy enough to get over their dislike and disapproval of Democratic policies? I think for some of us, for sure. I mean, I think I've learned a really big lesson as I've gone through the last 10 years of engagement and involvement between my introduction and involvement in 2008 to now. Of back then, it was, I'm not working with Democrats. They don't have any way that they agree with me. And I've evolved. I hate that word. Um, but evolved over the last decade. And I'm definitely on the end of the real work is done. And the most benefit is done when we do find common ground and work together and figure out how we get things done in Washington versus always have grandstanding and the other. And I think a lot of people who were traditionally never Trump or really engaged in that movement are kind of feeling the same way. Like there's got to be a better way to do this. And we've learned our lesson. I, I hear that a lot. I'm speaking for people I shouldn't be, but in my private conversations with other people that were in the same place I was, it's we've learned so many valuable lessons of the way we want to do this and the effects of the way we did it. Um, and so it's there's definitely room there, I think, for the unhappiness and the frustration to bring light opportunities to work together um, or to be more open to some suggestions from the other side. Um, I don't know. I don't want to, you know, paint a rosy picture because I think that there's still so much distrust and 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 that there as well. But there's an open door. Um, I think there's just and I, I think it's the same way on both sides. You guys correct me if I'm wrong. There's so much just distrust in general between different factions of the Republican Party of what what is your motivation? What do you really want to get out of it? 
you know, did you really just do this for a White House job? Those kinds of things that I don't think people are listening to the reasons or the, you know, the background context on why people are making the decisions they are. Um, and I see the same, I think, Bernie Sanders voters and, and different people on the yeah. left that have a lot of distrust or fear within their own party. Um, so maybe there's this place where all the people who <laughs> who didn't, you know, get what they wanted maybe can figure something out and work together. Yeah. Yeah, I have I have to say this what what you're describing is sounds like a wholesale conservative takeover of the most important piece of democratic intellectual property, which is, of course, senseless balkanization and mutual distrust. That is our shtick, and I will thank you to leave that to us. <laughs> ones who'd, who distrust and despise each other, let us have our thing. It's all we've got left. You can take it back. <laughs> so, and we're just we're with with uh, with waiting with waiting hands. So let's let's talk a little bit about uh, about Trump Care. Uh, it's it's out. It has finally emerged from wherever it was being hidden. And it is uh, definitively called Trump Care. We will refer to it as nothing else. Yes, that's this this is exactly right. Uh, <laughs> is, you don't want to call it Ryan Care? No, no, it's no. nope. It's it, this is we're we're taking a strong branding position here, especially since the White House asked us not to. Uh, so Trump Care is anyone happy with this thing, as far as you can tell? No. Besides, yeah, go ahead. No, I, I haven't met anybody who's happy with it. I think there are people who are optimistic. I see people who say, you know, this was just a draft and there's opportunities here to make tweaks. I know energy and commerce was up all night long, you know, marking this thing up and making changes and adding amendments that they think would make it better. But I haven't come across anyone besides Trump on his Twitter account who is very excited about, about this piece of legislation. Um, I, I don't know... I've heard people say that they think this was put out on purpose because it was destined to fail. And so maybe they just wanted to do this as part of a strategy. I'd love to talk to the person who thought that was a smart strategy. But um, yeah, I heard somebody say the same thing that it was sort of, oh, if this fails, we can blame the Dems. Yeah. Sure. That Because, I mean, it's a strategy premised on the idea that our healthcare reform is going to fail. Uh, and we'll blame the Dems, despite the fact that we have the White House, the Senate, and the House seems like one that may not be sitting on a very firm foundation. Yeah, I agree. And I think, too, people, you know, as much as we look at the last 18 months and we question the electorate, people are smart enough to know that we've heard for eight years, all you have to do is get us Congress in the White House and we're going to fix this. And then it was, you know, day one, day one, we're going to repeal this thing. And it was like they were handed the silver platter and freaked out and didn't know, oh, gosh, we actually have this. We're going to have to you know, come up with something. I'm pretty sure that the president may have said he had no idea that health care reform was so hard. Um, and so, I think he said complicated. Complicated. There we go. I'm going to get in trouble for this one. But I feel like that. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, it's an indication of so many things that we all knew were wrong and they're just all coming out at the same time and people are going, wait. You know, you asked us for this, you asked us for that. We gave it to you. Now, where's your promise? Um, so we'll see. Is there, is there any, no, I think I, I have this sort of image of exactly this, that they've gotten everything that they've wanted. It's time to reform. It's time for, it's time to, you know, repeal and look, replace whatever. And I just had this image of, you know, Priebus and all these other guys sitting around. Being like, okay, so let's have a look at this healthcare bill. Did anyone bring the healthcare bill? Did you have the, no, I thought you had it. Like, do, who, like, do, are you seriously telling me that no one has the damn health care bill? Uh, and then this and then it sort of flows from there. All right, quick, someone get a cocktail napkin and let's, let's write some stuff down. Uh, do you think that this can be made to work? Is this thing dead in the water or is, does it have a future? I think it can be made to work. Um, you know, 
the reality is, yes, it was a draft, right? And so they're going to pick this thing apart. They're going to take different pieces of it. And every group has their little sliver of it that they're concerned about. You know, for us, we're really concerned about what happens with Medicaid. Other groups are really concerned about tax credits and different things like that. So um, I think all of those groups have, you know, bombarded the House and they're trying to get, you know, their special interest in line and the things that they care about. Um, it'll just be really interesting to me to see what happens on the Senate side, because the posturing and the different dialogue that's coming out on the Senate end really is going to be what makes this live or die. And um, I I don't know it, that it's helpful when um, leadership and different members on, on the Senate side are contradictory in what they see in the bill, what they want from the bill, and on, on that end, too. So I, I think there's a path forward with the tweaks that need to be made and the changes that need to be made to the bill. But I don't know that the Senate is going to play ball um, either way. Yeah. And that, that kind of brings up a question that Frank and I talked a little bit about before. And that's OK. The Republicans have campaigned on this. They've been trying to govern on it. They've re- they repealed Obamacare, or voted to repeal Obamacare, I don't know, 60 some odd times. Why was there no like pre-approved draft of something sitting in somebody's desk drawer that when it finally came time and miraculously Donald Trump won, somebody pulled it out and you already had the insurance companies on board, the hospitals on board, the doctors, AARP, the Wall Street Journal editorial board, and the you know the the uh, uh, commentariat, all of whom are currently opposed to the bill. How does that not? How is that that how is that strategy not already there? I think two things. There was the price bill that came out what, almost two years ago that I think people thought was the starting place. And Paul Ryan even said it's basically the price bill. Um, and so I think people were expecting that to be the foundation for what the GOP started from. And it wasn't right. There's there were a lot of surprises in this thing. So I think that's part of it. And I also, you know, when Trump was elected and was starting to go through the transition, um, nobody really knew what was happening on the executive end. They kept it really quiet. You know, the House was doing its thing, and the House was trying to come up with, okay, we're going to have this chance. we got to do it. But the administration was putting their own plan together, and they had their own talking points, and they were saying something. And I'm not sure that those two were in line with each other. Yeah. So I do think there probably was a congressional House strategy or GOP strategy for how to tackle this, and then the two met, and it wasn't quite <laughs> what you know either one expected it to be. Yeah. Um, that's where we're seeing so much of this conflict, I think, is coming from all of those different priorities. And some people just saying, let's get this done because we said we were getting it done. And other people saying, gosh, no, there's really important pieces that need to be fixed of this. Let's tackle those first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, we don't want to belabor Trump care too much. Let's go on to more sexy topics like the budget. Um, and I just pulled up a, a number. It was a CNN poll um, that was done March 1st to March 4th. Um, and it basically asked people, increase military spending by cutting funding for the State Department, Environmental Protection Agency, and other non-defense agency. Approve, disapprove. Only 41% of people approved it. 58% of people disapprove of that. And Frank and I were just talking about the budget and kind of the idea that essentially our government is really just an insurance company with a military based on the way the budget is allocated. So. Um, is there any room for common ground between, again, going back to some of like traditional Republican ideas of how these things need to work and what Trump was elected on, essentially? I think so. Um, and I say this as you know, I mentioned earlier, I lean on the libertarian end to a lot of things, but I do believe there is a purpose for government. So um, and I think there are a lot of people like me in the party that feel the same way. Um, my concern is less on and I, and I hear this a lot. It's, it's smart spending, not necessarily less spending, but like how is after we 
do allocations? Is it being spent well? Have we audited you know, agencies and departments to make sure that what we've budgeted is actually getting where it needs to be? Have we cleaned out bureaucratic red tape? Those kinds of things. I'm perfectly fine funding agencies and organizations that are doing their job and doing it well and are good stewards with taxpayer dollars. Um, and so I think that's where we could find common ground is in the cleanup side of you know how we handle these things. Um, I think that there is also a piece of the base, the base that voted for Trump that just wants to burn it all down and get rid of everything. If that makes sense, this the EPA is useless. Let's throw it out the door and cut all their funding. But they don't because they've never been presented with, is there value to the agency? What are the things that they're doing that actually impact you on a daily basis? All they hear is, you know, it's useless. They're ruining your rights to water. Look, they polluted a river in Colorado. Um, so do I think that there's an opportunity for audit and cleanup? Yes. But, you know, I, I think it's messaging. It's how these things are messaged to people and how they're explained to people and their knowledge of what these agencies and organizations actually do. The State Department, so like my mother, who is a limitedly active Republican, when she hears that, she has no idea what that is and what they do. Not a clue. She knows we have a Secretary of State. She knows that they travel, but the actual depth of work completed by the State Department is completely foreign to her and to most, I think, to most Republicans. They just look at it as, that's a massive budget. We need to, you know, clean up. We Foreign relations aren't that important. Let's, you know, whatever. We should just spend all the money for the military. The military yeah. will protect us without making any correlation between how the two work together yeah. and the importance of the relationship, right? So I think we do a poor job of explaining that in general on both sides. You know, what are the purpose and roles of the agencies and departments that are getting allocations and why that matters? And then also on the the cleanup end, it, we hear so much about like waste and fraud and, and different things like that. Those are where things that trigger Republicans, just that in general. One article that says that somebody spent money on a party and bought something they shouldn't have bought and that their mind is like, that entire agency has to go, right? And so <laughs> it's that stuff too. So what you've described is I think a very reasonable, uh, it's a very reasonable process of kind of evaluating what the role of government is, how you how the budget is used to fulfill that role and, and so forth. So uh, let me ask you this question. How do, uh, you know, sensible conservative Republicans how do you keep that flame of sort of reasonable process burning while Trump is igniting the party from the outside in? Um, so this comes twofold. One, I don't think that you can be on the reasonable end of being a Republican if you don't have pretty thick skin um, and the knowledge that you're fighting an uphill battle. And so you just have to kind of own that and know that this is a long-term play. The next four years are going to be very interesting. But if we hold the line, if we keep pushing, if we put out quality research, quality messages, and we start building around people who can carry that torch, find someone who can carry the torch and share the message in a way that brings the message together, I think we can hold out and try to make something good happen in four years. Um, I have found that when I say what I just said to you, I get a better response from the left than I ever get from most people on the right. Um, I spent the last 18 months being called every name in the book by people who once thought I was like this great, amazing person that they, you know, like between my articles and they would do things. And now I am just this pariah of awfulness because I dared to, you know, say something that I've been saying for the last eight years. Um, and so I think those individuals are either going to burn out 
because this process is a rough one, as we can see with the healthcare bill. I think those people will, some of them will drop off, they'll find something else to get obsessed with, or they will drive us insane for the next four years, <laughs> and I don't know. I was so wrong about the last 18 months, who knows? Yeah, yeah, I, following up on, on, on kind of that idea, um, you know, it's sort of the joke of, you know, we talked about that there's sort of the Trump people, and then there's, which are sort of kind of maybe partially ported, the angry Tea Party members, less the fiscal Tea Party members, and then there's sort of like the traditional uh, Republicans, some of the, you know, uh, uh, folks like Lindsey Graham and, and, and John McCain, who have been pretty vocal against Trump, yet uh, Graham goes to lunch at the White House yesterday and comes out with, you know, a happy tweet about how he gave him his phone number. So I guess the, like, I guess my kind of question is, what do Republicans need in order to kind of keep their, uh, uh, well, we'll be gruesome about it. Like, which Republicans are going to grow a pair of balls and keep them against sort of the onslaught of the White House? I look at people like Ben Sachs, and I don't know how much you guys pay attention to Ben Sachs, but I feel he's like great. he's done a great job of um, defining conservatism in a way that's relatable to those of us who that's why we became Republicans. And I think it's going to take people like that who are still going to work every day. They're doing the job of representing their state or their constituency, and they're doing it within the context of, I don't care if the president disagrees with me. I don't care if he tweets about me at 5 a.m. or says that if I say this, he's going to come and give me a primary challenger. I am going to be the soul of the future of the party, and I'm going to be the one that consistently carries that. Um, there are few and far between. We, you know, Ted Cruz had dinner with Donald Trump last night, and I think I saw a lot of people wondering, like, wow, you know, how did this happen? What's going to come out of that meeting? Is he going to come out and just be supportive of of everything from the administration? Um, but it's going to take people like like Ben Sass and, and the rest of us just consistently defining what conservatism is supposed to be. Um, but I don't know. And again, I, like I said, I've been wrong about everything the last <laughs> 18 months. So take this for what it is. I don't know what the Republican Party looks like in four years. I really don't. I don't I don't know if if it's two parties. I don't know if it's you know, I don't know if people just jump shark and join the Democratic Party. I don't know what people are going to do. I think we're just entering a time that is really unsure for a lot of people and how this healthcare battle plays out. I think yeah. it's going to determine that for a lot of people, like what actually happens, what what comes out of the situation. And um, I think it's going to set a lot of people on one track or the other. So I was going to ask whether the GOP, um, and, and we you, you sort of got into this, that it's it's not clear what its future direction is. Is the party institutionally strong enough to recover from Trump post-presidency? Um, I think that that base is institutionally, or I wouldn't even say institutionally. Um, I've never thought, or not never, I guess, I've spent a lot of the last eight years wondering what the institution of the Republican Party actually looked like. Um, you know, what was the inner working? What was the strategy? Where is the strategy for, you know, creating a next generation of the Republican Party? People my age, people younger than me. You know, what was the strategy there? I still don't know what that is or who's leading that charge. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. I've got a lot of friends that talk a lot about we should start our own effort and we should get ourselves together. We should do this, you know, something different or something separate as people who really know what we believe. Um, but I haven't seen anything come, you know, to fruition from it. So on the question of kind of policing the borders of, the, of, of what it means to be a conservative or a Republican, uh, there was a, a, a piece 
uh, in Politico about uh, the Center for American Progress uh, hosting what is meant to be a kind of progressive version of CPAC. Of, uh, of CPAC. What is your, and for, for our listeners, uh, CPAC is the annual uh, confluence of conservatives. Uh, it's been going on for uh, 40 years, uh, but it, it, I would say, when, is it fair to say it's really reached prominence in the last sort of 15 as a kind of like a place that if you're thinking about doing anything as a, as a major Republican figure, you've got to go to CPAC at some point, give a speech, shake the hands, do the whole thing. Uh, what is your view of CPAC? Has it been, does it have any utility for your party? Kind of what's your read on it? I think that, so take this, we realized this year when I was at CPAC, it was my seventh CPAC in a row. And um, I think that CPAC has this undercurrent of positive movement that is an opportunity for people to get in one room together. And it is an opportunity for new faces to get in front of people that matter, right? So you can have an upcoming state senator or an up and coming congressman or woman get an opportunity to speak on the main stage and, and share their stories and ideas. The flip side to that is that everyone comes into CPAC and they interview like the 10 most radical Republicans that, it, that are there. And that becomes the story for the GOP. And they don't do a great job of encouraging diversity at CPAC, bringing different factions of the party together at CPAC, making everyone feel like there's actually a dialogue on the issues. Um, this year I was really disappointed in the bulk of the agenda uh, because there wasn't a lot of dialogue or debates or bringing in outside voices that are an opportunity to actually advance the party. It just kind of becomes this thing that is like a finger pointing, look what they said at CPAC, look what they did at CPAC, these are Republicans. Yeah. Um, and it's not helpful. Um, you know, you guys, I know, follow everything. The Milo, is it Milo or Milo? Milo. We just call it Jackass. Milo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that, that kind of a thing, that was a PR nightmare. Yeah. That was a nightmare for the event. It started just people who were there were mad because they liked the guy. Other people were just angry he was ever invited. I had people that were like, I'm not going if he's going to be there. And they had spent $25,000, you know, on the booth and equipment and things for their radio show to be there. Um, those types of things become the story instead of what could come out of a conference like that, which is, Great dialogue on good policy. We could have talked about healthcare at CPAC. What, what is the plan? What's being presented? You know, where are we at? Where should we go? Yeah. So I think for the left, if I could give you any insights, is if you do something like that, you know, make it about policy, not pomp and circumstance and the, the crazy and, you know, all of the other stuff that comes with it and don't let an outside influence become the story because that would be a disastrous thing, I think, too. There was a thing on that the Friday of CPAC where someone talked about how, I think it was the Friday where people had to, people had sort of a choice of events, one of which was the Breitbart event that would feature uh, Milo, even though he hadn't been, uh, he wasn't on the speakers, but he was in, he was there for the event. So one of them was the Breitbart event, uh, you know, partly featuring Milo, and one of them was the alternate non-Breitbart uh, social gathering that Michael Cernovich, or Cernovich, however you pronounce it, was hosting. And I sort of thought, CPAC has become a thing where conservatives are sent and given a choice between the devil and the deep blue sea. Like this has just gone horribly, horribly awry. So I think if we can ever, I don't know who the equivalents of the, of Milo and, and Cernovich are on the, uh, on the, on the left side, but if we can steer clear of that, that would be awesome. Yeah. And for someone, I mean, the first, there's this other thing to CPAC. And again, it's an opportunity. Um, the college Republicans and groups like, um, what is their name? Turning Point. They bring a lot of high school and college age kids to CPAC. And it's kind of like spring break for Republican college students. Yeah. And there is 
tons of them that come to this event. This is an opportunity for conservatives to engage them, find out what they care about, really dig deep and educate them on policy and, and get them involved. And instead, this is the environment that they're introduced to. And so I think um, you know, we have to do better on the conservative end of taking advantage of that type of of it. The kids are off, always asked, like, what would you rather be right now at CPAC or on a beach for spring break? And they all say CPAC. So these are hardcore kids right. that, you know, really want to be here. They chose to do this instead of a, you know, a college spring break. So we want to make sure that those individuals really get a quality experience. Um, and there are some fantastic conservative organizations that attend. There's some good media opportunities that come out of this, but it's often hijacked like it was this year yeah. by things that don't represent the the purpose of the event or the core of the party. All right. Well, that's some sage advice that uh, we'll take to heart and not pass on to anybody of any who's listening to us because CPAC, I'm sure Cap is not listening to us on a regular basis, although perhaps, Frank, we should just start sliding discs of our podcasts under their front door at night. Um, Whitney, <laughs> Whitney, thank you very, very much for joining us. Hopefully you'll do it again sometime in the very near future. Um, and yeah, we'll uh, uh, close out our show momentarily. Frank just mentioned this uh, Center for American Progress CPAC type thing while we were talking to Whitney. I wanted to dig into it a bit more uh, because, as we said earlier about Trump care, if there's something worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. And to me, this is really just that. Uh, it's clearly a well thought out process. Nothing says we understand America like a conference at the St. Regis three blocks from the White House in the middle of May. Yeah, and I think this kind of reflects a, a bit of caps and uncertainty about where they are in the progressive movement. And, and to be fair, they're not the only ones. Everyone is trying to figure out where they're going to belong in the broader progressive firmament. Oh, uh, like what and, Whitney was saying is going on in the conservative party. Yeah, and I think that's right. This is, this is a, this is an event that is really, really sort of shaken up everyone. Uh, and we're all trying to figure out where we are and we know we've lost our ass and don't know which way to turn. Um, so it's good to know that we have a lot of people on that particular bus, uh, with us together. But I think what cap is trying to do here is, you know, this is the, you know, Cap in the Bush years was, you know, a a, a thing a, a think tank, and that it was an ideas box. It was a policy shop, and it was a government in waiting for whenever we eventually went back to the White House, which we did. There's a lot of back and forth between Cap and the Obama administration uh, in the last eight years, and then toward the end of the Obama administration, Cap also became a holding tank for uh, the Hillary Clinton campaign, and then what was assumed to be the next Clinton administration, and then when that campaign lost. It wasn't clear, and again, this cap is not alone in this, but it really wasn't clear where cap, what it was meant to do. I mean, it has all this money, has all this name recognition, it has relation, all these relationships in the kind of democratic establishment, but what exactly it was meant to be as part of the next iteration of the progressive movement is not entirely clear. So this is pretty clearly them being an organizing agent and doing this annual thing makes it, you know, kind of, and describing it as they have, like a progressive CPAC makes it look like Cap is trying to be an organizing agent of the left as well as the kind of center-left center, which is politically, I think, where Cap fits. Uh, and and this is this is fun, but it's off to, but, you know, as you say, having it uh, at the St. Regis, three blocks from the White House in May, is, makes it off to a little bit of a rocky start. Yeah, you know, I think Cap has really been going out of their way to clear out some of the space on the left for them to control. Uh, they were some of the first, they were the first group to have some uh, profile pieces written about them in Politico on the Hill. Obviously, that's all kind of inside baseball, but it's important in terms of donors or trying to demonstrate to party leadership that who's going to have power. And they were the first ones out of the box after uh, the Trump victory of saying, oh, we're reevaluating, we're going to be on top of our stuff, we're going to raise all this money, we're going to do all the right things, and everybody should follow us because we are Cap. 
Um, and I don't know that I necessarily buy that ever, especially right now. Um, but going back to this specific issue, uh, leaving alone for a second if CAP has any value, uh, let's focus more on whether or not this uh, particular initiative of doing this uh, CPAC-like event, which is what uh, Politico called it, it's not what we're calling it, it's what Politico dubbed it, um, has has uh, really any value. Uh, clearly CPAC, um, even as Whitney acknowledged, has had a, a, a significant impact on the GOP and has helped it in a lot of ways by at least providing some kind of anchor and testing ground for uh, up-and-comers and the next generation of, of both policy people, policy people and elected people. And if I guess if there's any value to this idea that CAP is trying to do, this might be it, I get. I, that might be it, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem with CPAC is it, it has kind of forced, and I think both its problem and I think its advantage for the conservatives is it's forced candidates to pass an ideological test how uh, you know you had to be able to go to CPAC and appeal to them, or or take a, a or take a, a or take a line against them and and not go and kind of be resistant to that wing of the party. But it forced it gave candidates something to define themselves as either being being on side with or against, uh, and it and that policed what it meant to be a Republican for a long time, which is is good if you're trying to build a kind of coherent sense of what a party is. Uh, it also created some bad headlines, as Whitney pointed out, and it has kind of. You know, there, while there is some advantage to using an event like this to define what a party believes, what it means to be a member of that party, uh, it, it's weird because per our conversation with Whitney, it's not clear what CPAC is meant to do anymore. It's clearly it's clear that it's not serving all of the very it's clear that it's not serving the totality of the Republican Party, especially yeah. well. In fact, you could argue it's always kind of belonged to this this fringe group that's gotten more headlines than they deserve as a result of it, uh, and. And it's, you know, there is, and and yet at the same time, CPAC has grown to prominence right at a time when Republicans have won basically most of the elections in the United States. Yeah, over the last so, six years. Over the last, yeah, over the last six years. And it's really grown to prominence in the last, yeah, exactly, in the last 10 to 15, which for the most part, with the, with the exception of two presidential elections, which we can't look away from, but are clearly not the totality of the direction of American politics has been, has been very, very good for Republicans. Yeah. And I don't think, and, and that, that made, I don't think there's a causal relationship there, but clearly CPAC has at worst not sunk the Republican party's fortunes. Uh, so I think it just, I think it's been kind of a, I don't want to focus too much on CPAC, but I think it's been kind of a mixed blessing for, uh, for conservatives at, at most. And I think that's a, a salutary lesson for progressives as we think about doing this ourselves. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the problem becomes is something we we talked about in our, our in our teaser about the uh, DNC chair race was this idea that uh, either Ellison or Paris Paris, if they won, wouldn't uh, have the ability to be heard by the other side of the party. And to me, um, uh, you know, just on a very superficial level, Perez represents the cap side of the party, and I don't know that the other organizations that currently have a lot of the, um, let's use emotion instead of anger as the term. Uh, a lot of the emotion, a lot of the, and are generating a lot of the activity, um, are the part are the groups that are more readily associated with Ellison, and I worry that this event may either not attract them or have to tilt so far in that direction as to then ignore uh, where they came, from, where Cap came from, from in the first place. Sure, and I think on on that point, this is related, although it's not about the the CPAC 
progressive CPAC thing. Uh, but Paris and Ellison have clearly identified, I mean, it, that wasn't a profound observation on my part, and they clearly have identified that as the problem as well, because now they're doing a, du- a duo, you know, Paris and Ellison on tour thing. I will not allow you to denigrate yourself. That was indeed a very profound thought. That was, I was the only one who thought of it. Me, the only one. me, me, and only me. <laughs> uh, yeah, so they're, I mean, they've clearly figured this out as part of the problem. They're going out to, to various cities doing a kind of double act roadshow, uh, which I think would also make for a, ter- if they just solved crimes, that would be an awesome television show. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they need like the, they need like the bumbling chubby guy who's like their desk sergeant. And I volunteer. You're, you're in? <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. I could also be the guy who demand who all, I could also be the lieutenant who always demands their gun and badge. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it, Paris and Ellison. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it! I don't like the way you work, but you guys sure get results. <laughs> well, now that we're fully off off target on this, uh, something you brought up the other day that I thought was really interesting was the idea of the British parties and their annual conferences and how you know there might be lessons to be learned from that. Yeah, so the the British political parties do, unlike uh, the American political parties who do their conferences once every four years, uh, the Brits do theirs every year. Now there's the annual party conference. And it, I think it has a real upside in that it builds a, a kind of – it can build a sense of camaraderie within the party. Uh, it gives people a chance to connect and kind of share ideas and, uh, and, and it also gives the party leader a chance to lay out an agenda uh, for the coming year, which in Jeremy Corbyn's case is uh, – you know that agenda is to just be beaten senseless at every possible opportunity. Um, so you – know, but that's an agenda nonetheless. And instructive uh, foot in mouth sticking. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Instructive foot and mouth sticking. Uh, you know, it, it delivers a plenary on bed shitting, uh, just you know, and a and a series of workshops on tripping over your own dick. Uh, so you know, there is there. So you know, you can't. <laughs> not all party conferences and party leaders are created equal, but it gives the. But in theory, it can give a party leader a chance to lay out an agenda to re-energize the base a little bit, uh, and to to give some up and comers some exposure. So. In that sense, it has some utility. I think there is the possibility that what Cap is talking about doing here might have some of that to it. One of the big differences here is that British parties always have a leader, almost always have a leader when they're doing this. The Labour Party certainly always has a leader when they do uh, when they do their annual conference, uh, even if it's a hugely unpopular one. Sometimes that leader is announced at the conference, the vote having been taken leading into it. Uh, what one of these things looks like without a party leader is not clear to me. Uh, again, CPAC has been doing these things for you know for years where there hasn't been a clear party leader. But but what this looks like at a time when when Democrats really don't have a, a party leader, it's it's not it's just not clear to me. Yeah, and that's to me like represents really part of the big challenge. I mean, the, the idea that there's not much of a bench on the Democratic side is sort of yeah that idea has sort of been beaten to death uh, because it's true. Um, but there's also not necessarily a big unifying ideology aside from the fact that Trump sucks which is unifying in the fact that he sucks. But there are also aspects that, you know, you actually need to believe and do things to stick up for those beliefs, even if legislatively there's not a whole lot you can do while being in the minority. Um, And I think that what was interesting was that Politico picked up on this also when they wrote up this article with, you know, the exclusive from Cap uh, when they were doing this, is that they immediately went in the direction of the the unofficial start to 2020 and it being a cattle call um, similar to what uh, CPAC does. You got Warren, Booker, Harris, Murphy, and Gillibrand already on board. You've got Montana Governor Steve Bullock, who's the guy I've got my eye on, um, on board. You've got um, Los Angeles um, Mayor Garcetti there. 
Um, and more, I'm sure, will we'll, we'll jump on that bandwagon as well. Um, in addition to the 2020 field is uh, Andrew Cuomo, who for years has uh, refused to leave his state to go leave New York to go to D.C. for fear that the press may interpret it as uh, uh, the start of a campaign, went to Israel for the weekend. Um, having done that trip for a 72-hour trip, for a 72-hour visit, I can't imagine doing it for a 24-hour visit. Um, and he's done nothing, nor has his staff done anything, to tamp down the speculation on 2020, uh, despite that he's got another election in, 18, in uh, 2018, uh, where it's uh, seemingly that he is going to run for a third term, which uh, generally does not end well for Cuomo's, but uh, he, may, <laughs> he may be in a different perspective. Um, I, I mean, I, I think it'll be interesting to see um, who shows up, what they say, if everybody's singing from the same hymnal, or if it's just going to be a lot of people complaining without any anything that's going to be unifying. Yeah, it's a good question. And what is what does this thing look like when it's done from the center? Like that's the big kind of difference here because you know CPAC is a, is an event that's run by a kind of, I mean you could call it fringe if you were being pejorative. I think that's accurate, uh, but certainly an extreme side of the Republican Party. Uh, you know, CAP is the is, you know wherever they fit, whether they're center left or just outright center. What well, one of these things looks like without a kind of broader unifying ideology is just remains to be seen. But I think there's some potential here. But if you're talking about the cattle call of 2020, uh, one uh, and I have to thank a couple of our of our listeners, uh, you know, Ryan and Graham, among uh, various other people have pointed this out to me that uh, this week, Gary Johnson, former governor of New Mexico, uh, my glorious home state, uh, announced that and former libertarian candidate uh, for president. Uh, announced that he is and he will not be running in 2020. Uh, this was a disappointment to his many supporters, who, as we know, are a coalition of estranged redditors, bilious stoners, and a roving band of truly dodgy ass ferrets. Uh, so we have lost Gary Johnson. Uh, in some respects, this is a shame uh, because it uh, denies us another opportunity to publicly humiliate him. Uh, but on the whole, uh, I think it's uh, Gary Johnson disappears from the national pub, uh, national political scene, not before time. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Yeah, uh, Johnson leaving makes it sort of interesting. This is something I actually wanted to bring up with Whitney. Maybe next time she's on, she will. Um, and it's the idea of depending what kind of shakes out over 2018, I see an entirely plausible situation where Trump runs in 2020 as a third party candidate. Or the Republicans start a third run a third party candidate for real, not just you know McMullen at the last minute. Sure, why not? I mean, honestly, like it's very possible that Trump could vacate his own party and you know declare a kind of like you know you know the you know the the, the TV and KFC party, and right. you know and when when and when and and when and when just as large a percentage as he did beforehand, like yeah. you've got all of these you know and then you know, just picture just like people taking to the streets. You know, a series of, you know, of reporters asking, you know, asking, uh, asking voters, you know, how long have you been, uh, how long have you been a TV and KFC fan, uh, party member? Oh, you know, pretty much all my life, I guess. I just didn't know it was, you know, I just didn't know to call it that. It right. like, oh, man, like, do not underestimate just how fucking dumb things have gotten. Yeah, yeah. TV and KFC for 2020. Yeah. All right. Well, with that <laughs> positive note, that is our show for this week. Thank you, Frank Spring. Thank you, Whitney Monroe. And thank you, listeners. Uh, please remember to subscribe on iTunes. Stars generously review us, and you can now do the same on Stitcher, Google Play, or SoundCloud. We're trying to figure out how to get up on Spotify, but we're not, we're not quite there yet. Importantly, follow us on Twitter at, at @takingship, and that's ship with a P as in prescription. 
where you can send us your questions and your scornful missives and your uh, compliments, which we are always uh, um, in dire need for. Please join us next week as we are joined by another terrific guest. Uh, we'll probably be announcing that sometime early next week. Uh, we're also thinking that we may post a, a shorter episode uh, earlier next week. Uh, so keep, uh, keep your eyes out for that. But if you subscribe, you'll know automatically. All right, Frank, where are we taking ship? Ellie, this week we are taking ship for Azerbaijan. If you haven't read the New Yorker piece, and, and you simply must have read the New Yorker piece, lest someone mistake you for being amongst the bootless and unhorsed, and we couldn't have that, then now can we? Uh, if you haven't read the New Yorker piece, uh, it'll explain why, uh, but the broad point is, uh, it's called Donald Trump's Worst Deal. Uh, it's by Adam Davidson, uh, and wanting nothing more than to get in on that sweet, sweet bad deal action. Uh, Ellie and I have a series of important meetings with some legitimate business people uh, set up in Azerbaijan. Legitimate business people. So friends, we take ship now for the Caucasus. Mm -hmm.